I'm an ex-alcoholic, drug addict, criminal, hustler, womanizer, fighter, liar, manipulator, player, drug dealer, thief, abuser, hypocrite, and a worldly confused individual. My name is Ben Lively. I'm not who I was before. I'm a born-again child of the Most High God, anointed, chosen, set apart, and called to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. I teach Christians the truth of God's word. I'm a mouthpiece for the Lord Jesus Christ. I will not compromise, play any games, or waste time with this mission from on high. I know that in and of myself, I am nothing. I need God for every breath I take and every move I make. I have Christ living in me, and I'm burning with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I'm different now and forevermore. This earth is not my home. I know that, and I declare it boldly. I'm strong in prayer, praying in power, and in the Spirit. I will preach, teach, deliver, evangelize, prophesy, baptize, and build up groups of believers as God allows. He is working through me as I'm surrendered to His service as an instrument of righteousness. And if you know me or get to know me, you'll realize that I take no credit for this, but God gets all the glory. In Christ I live, and to heaven I will rise. so much for tuning in and welcome everyone hope you're well i'm your host ben lively and you're listening to shaken awake episode number 11 i just wanted to thank you for tuning in wherever you are and whatever you're doing right this very moment and listen if you find value in uh, today's episode please pass the news pass the podcast name and link to a friend or family member or a colleague that you feel would benefit from the show and become blessed as you are through the words that the Lord shares through these messages. It's probably one of the easiest things you can do to spread the word, just pass the resource on and, and let God do the rest. And just a note, if you haven't checked out the show yet at uh, www.shaken-awake.com, please do. It's got all the podcasts and a transcript of each along with some other items. And also, please connect with the show via LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, with more to follow. Great, just great avenues and channels to spread the messages even further. I'm using those channels to provide more messages throughout the week. So check them out if you get the chance. Also, looks like we've added Germany to our growing list of listeners from other countries. Welcome aboard, Germany. Glad to have you with us. And as always... I promise you another great show, but more than anything, my hope for you today and always is that you have an actual encounter with the Lord. He is always right there with you, even when you think he's not. So let's get ready to invite him in with us right here, right now, and allow him to speak directly to your hearts and minds. So here goes. Here is today's topic. Why do really good people go to hell and really bad people go to heaven? The point of today's episode that I really want to hit home for all of you is the one that God revealed to me within the past couple of years that I had been completely blind to my entire life. The Holy Spirit has revealed to me that many like me have been led astray by the enemy and tricked into being deceived as well as to who truly enters the kingdom of God and who will not. It's a topic that he's placed in front of me to uh, speak with you on today. So, you know, science cannot find it, 
books have attempted to explain it and movies uh, attempt to betray it. And everyone wants to know about what life after death looks like. Is grandpa in heaven? Am I going to heaven or hell? What if nothing happens when I die? Everybody wrestles with questions about the afterlife. Sooner or later, it touches our own lives or someone we know. And since there's so much confusion, it can be easy to believe what's popular or what feels good. But what's convenient should never become more important than what's true. I'm sure you'd agree. So here are some common lies about life after death and the truths that God wants us to understand about it. So lie number one, there's no heaven or hell. So this view says that after our physical bodies die, that's it, nothing else. Humans don't have souls that live on after we die. Uh, or if we do have souls, they will be destroyed rather than existing in eternity. Well, here's truth number one. Heaven and hell exist. Everyone spends eternity in one of these places. Jesus spoke about heaven, hell, and eternity many times. As in John three thirteen to 16, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the, the Bible describes hell as a place where those who reject Jesus will endure eternal suffering and separation from God. Heaven is a place where Jesus, Jesus' followers live forever with God. In heaven, everything that's wrong with this world is set right. There are no tears, no pain or death. So following Jesus is the only way to experience heaven. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So lie number two, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. So this view says people get what they deserve. So where you spend eternity depends on how good of a person you are in life. This leaves people hopeless if they've lived a messy life, right? And it, and it leaves well-behaved people prideful about their accomplishments. But truth number two is bad people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. If where we spent eternity depended on the actions in our lives, none of us would go to heaven and all of us would go to hell. Our eternal status doesn't depend on anything other than our relationship with Jesus. God's grace is big enough for any uh, everyone. Everyone's guilty of rebelling against what God says. Psalms 14, one to three says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who do good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So because we all sin, we're all headed toward hell. But it's only because of Jesus that anyone's life is changed and saved. So lie number three, there's a heaven, but no hell. 
So this view sometimes is called uh, universalism. It teaches that everyone goes to heaven regardless of what they decide about Jesus. It takes God out of the picture and replaces him with a general sense of happiness. Well, truth number three says hell exists and God doesn't want anyone to go there. God's love is far bigger than a sense of happiness. Okay, His love is so big, he wants all people to be saved from their sins and know him. In 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Sin hurts us and others. And God would not be good if he allowed us to hurt ourselves by sinning without consequences. It would be like a young child who kept touching the hot stove while the parent did nothing to protect the child from his or her self-destructive behavior. God is not okay with us hurting ourselves or others. Because God is a good father, he made a way to stop the cycle of sin once and for all. You know, touching a hot pot leads to burned fingers. The consequences of sin is death. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the penalty for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And because Jesus paid for our sins, we have the opportunity to enjoy a relationship with God now and for eternity. Romans 10, 9 says we just have to believe. And it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't let the afterlife become an afterthought. Saying yes to Jesus means spending both now and eternity with him. In John 6.38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Six times in John 6, it stressed that Jesus came down from heaven, underscoring not only his divine origin, but also that his purpose is to do God's will. The Greek word translated as heaven is alonos, and in context refers to the dwelling place of God. In Christian theology, it's also where the redeemed will dwell. And there's this, uh, there's a, you know, a common perception that so long as one leads a generally good life, they'll get into heaven. But the question, don't all good people go to heaven, assumes a number of points. First, there's usually the theory that God exists and that he is all loving. Second, there's an assumption that although some quote unquote bad people may need punishment, most people are generally good and as such are entitled to heaven. Third, there's the view that entrance into heaven is on the basis of merit, our works, rather than God's grace. And fourth, related to the question about heaven is the implied suggestion that hell, if it exists at all, is really only for a marginal few who are responsible for particularly evil acts. So let's you know briefly look at these points, okay? God exists and is all-loving. That God exists is an obvious component of the, the Christian worldview. He not only exists, but he's the you know the creator, the designer, sustainer of the universe, and everything in it. Not only is he ever-present, all-knowing, and all-powerful, God is also all-loving. He's a personal being active. He is a personal being active in his creation, but distinct from it. And those who argue that all good people go to heaven 
and then make the case that a loving God would not turn away good and sincere individuals. Instead, they reason it's obvious that he would allow them to go into heaven. However, this position, it fails to consider the broader spectrum of the nature of God. So while we may gather general beliefs about him from what he has made, as in Romans 120 states, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So he has made such as his existence, power, and moral nature. We learn specifics about him from the Bible, his special revelation. It's here that we learn that God is indeed merciful. He's also completely holy. These aspects of his nature, particularly his justice and holiness, mean that anything even remotely sinful cannot dwell in God's presence. Also, are most people good? So the, ne the next assumption is that although some quote-unquote bad people may need punishment, most are generally quote-unquote good and entitled to heaven. The position that views people as generally good and entitled to heaven tends to make the error of viewing human nature as basically good. Biblical evidence as well as practical evidence shows this view to be false. As the Bible explains in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 51.5 comes across even stronger. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So biblically speaking, most people are not good. In fact, when compared to God's standard of holiness, no one is good. To one degree or another, we all as Romans 3.23 states, fall short of the glory of God. This doesn't mean that we're always actively engaged in doing evil or participating in deprived or depraved acts all the time, but it does mean that in our very nature, we are fallen. We're in rebellion against God and incapable of saving ourselves. And works and grace is another. The view that entrance into heaven is on the basis of merit or our works rather than God's grace is also common. But a works-based system of salvation is foreign, right, to the message of Christ. Whether or not one enters heaven is not dependent on a scale of good and evil, where we hope our good, our, uh, you know, the good acts outweigh our bad ones. So while this perspective may be common, it's biblically incorrect. As Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 reads, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace is God's unmerited favor, demonstrated most fully in the sacrifice of Christ. In short, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus the way and the truth and the life, as John 14, 6 states. So those who argue that all good people go to heaven often suggest that if hell exists, it's reserved for a minority of particularly evil people. But since most people are not so evil, they, they argue, it may make sense to claim that all good people will, will get to heaven regardless of any minor you know, lapses in, in, in moral behavior. Does this, does this reasoning hold up? 
does so only if it fails to take into account the nature of God, the nature of sin, and, and what, what the Bible has to say on the subject. As, we, as we've uh, discussed, God's holy, but he is also just. God's justice requires a reality of hell for the unredeemed. The nature of sin extends, biblically speaking, to everyone. Salvation is not by works, but by God's grace through Christ. What if you're sincere? Some will ask. Well, what, what about sincere and good people who are not Christian? What about that? What about those who have never heard? Won't God welcome them into heaven? This assumes that sincerity is enough to correspond to the truth, when in reality, it isn't. As Proverbs 16.25 reads, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Sincerity will only get someone so far, then it must face reality. No matter how sincere we are, or someone may be about being able to fly by frantically flapping their arms, their sincerity is not going to keep them in the air. Okay. Besides, if someone's actively believing something that's not true and as a result is explicitly or implicit, implicitly, if not explicitly, rejecting God, it seems odd for God to welcome such a person in heaven. Sincerity is not enough. One also has to believe what is true. No one is good except God alone. Like the man who approached Jesus and used the word good, perhaps, you know, without giving it much thought. We, we too need to be careful how we use and define our terms. As Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. That's in Mark 10, 18 and Luke 18, uh, verse 19. Do all good people go to heaven? Since no one is good as defined by God, the answer is no. Those who enter heaven do so not only on the basis of merit, but on the basis of God's grace as bestowed by Jesus Christ. We can't work our way to heaven or claim to be without sin. It says so in 1 John 1.8. Instead, we must humbly submit to God, turning from our wrong behavior and turn to Christ for salvation. Now, often we continue thinking about this and we say, but that just isn't fair. How could God judge people that are good and that I talked about? You know what that's like saying? That's like saying, how could someone starve if they refuse to eat? There's food all around them, but they say, no, I will not be drawn into eating this food. I can live on my own. It doesn't work that way, does it? You need food to live. Or, or it would be like saying, how could someone be thirsty if they don't drink any water? The only way to not be thirsty is to drink. And we know that, so we do anything we can to get it. We can do anything we can to get the food we need to get the water we need. And it's the same for Jesus. We have nothing. The only thing we can look forward to is death and hell. So it's not that good people go to heaven when they die. It's just the opposite. Good people who are confident in their goodness and their independence, they're the ones who turn away from life who don't eat it. They're the ones who end up in death and hell for all eternity. See, it's the bad ones, the ones who repent, the ones who turn to God and say, feed me, please, I can do nothing. That's when God connects them to life. For Jesus promises to raise us up on that last day in his name. As children, we were all taught this, okay? Many of us have even taught this to our own children. 
good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. This is called Christian mythology. It's a kind of a street-level, common-sense, morality-based idea of who God is. This notion of good and bad has not, it's not true. There's no truth in it whatsoever. It's not derived from the Bible, but from what people think or assume the Bible says, rather than what the Bible actually has to say about such matters. The Bible teaches us that heaven is a place created for sinners saved by grace. That's John 3, 17 and John 14, 3. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Unmerited means unearned. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You can't buy it. Being good absolutely has nothing to do with whether or not you make it into heaven. There will be lots of good and moral and decent people who live good and productive uh, productive lives who nonetheless will, will not make it into heaven. In fact, heaven will be populated by lots of people we might consider bad or even evil who at some point turned from their sin and invited Christ into their lives. Most of us grew up with the idea of God sending people to hell. As youngsters, you know, many of us struggled to, to reconcile the notion of a loving God sending his own creation to a place of torment and hopelessness, just like it states in, in Luke 16 throughout. Some of us have turned away from the church, and by that, also God. Because what we were taught as children, this nonsense invented myth about good and bad could not be reconciled in our mind with the, with the concept of God's love and Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. After all, if God is love, how could he create this terrible place as a punishment for us? How could a loving God send people to hell? The most basic answer is to correct an assumption. God doesn't send anyone to hell. It's not God's will that any of us should perish but that we all might have everlasting life. What we call hell was never created for us. It was created for angels who rose up against God in a rebellion led by Lucifer. Once, who was one of God's most trusted and magnificent angels. We now call Lucifer Satan and refer to those angels who followed him in his rebellion as demons. This place of torment, this place of uh, outer darkness and eternal fire, it was created as a punishment for Satan and all who follow him. It had nothing to do whatsoever with us. There are a lot of charges brought up against the God of our Bible. Perhaps one of the most common is if God is supposed to be loving, how could he send people to hell just because they didn't worship him? It's implied that it's deeply unjust for God to judge sin at all. And even worse, to do so by sending the sinners to a place of eternal punishment. However, these critics often profess they don't believe in the God they are accusing. And they also deny any objective standard of right and wrong anyway. Sometimes believers also struggle with this question, wondering how could God condemn someone who never heard of Jesus and so never had a chance to believe in him, for example. The question of hell is not an appealing one, even for people who affirm its existence. No one likes the idea of many people suffering judgment in the life to come. But the good news of the gospel requires that there, that there be bad news, right? Salvation in Jesus Christ would not bring glory to God if there was actually nothing to be saved from. So it's important to be able to give an answer, even in the case of a subject that no one particularly likes contemplating. Oh, who goes to hell? 
when unbelieving people or critics, as I like to call them, talk about hell, they sometimes speak like it will be full of innocent people like themselves. However, the Bible doesn't indicate that innocent people will spend a single moment in hell. Rather, hell's God's answer to the fundamental injustice of this life. There are many murderers, rapists, and other people who wreak havoc in the lives of others, who never experience judgment in this life. Everyone knows that it's wrong, that these people were never brought to account for what they've done. Something in the human heart demands justice, and hell is God's answer. A great author, Randy Alcorn, many books, look him up, Randy Alcorn. He writes, without hell, justice would never overtake the unrepentant tyrants responsoring for murdering millions. Perpetrators of evil throughout the ages would get away with murder and rape and torture and every evil. Even if we may acknowledge hell as a necessary and just punishment for evildoers, however, we rarely see ourselves as worthy of hell. After all, we're not Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Bundy, or Dahmer. God responds, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's Romans 3, 10 through 12. So for the majority of people who are not guilty on the scale of these, obviously, even to us, depraved people, it's hard to understand that we deserve punishment too. But most people have grievances against others. So if someone stole from you or hurt your children or if you were a victim of something just fundamentally unjust, you'd, you'd want justice. Your sense of what is right would demand that the person at fault pay a penalty for wrong for, for wronging you. Every time we break God's law, that's an insult to God. And he demands justice, just as we do imperfectly on a smaller scale. So if you ever said in your heart, you know, that person should pay for what he did, then you fundamentally agree with the idea of hell. Because the doctrine of hell says somebody is going to pay for sin eventually. And sin is rebellion against our creator. God didn't create people to go to hell. And he didn't create people to sin. In fact... The place he made for people originally was perfect. The Garden of Eden had everything Adam and Eve could ever want. It was a safe and pleasant, God lovingly provided everything they needed and they enjoyed a perfect relationship with the creator. God gave them some simple commands, have children, tend the garden, don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their continuing perfect relationship with God, it only required them to obey. It was a, a position that we can only imagine today. And even though Adam and Eve had everything they could ever possibly need, they disobeyed God and ate from the tree that God had forbidden. Sin immediately broke the perfect fellowship that they had enjoyed with God. And they realized that they were sinful and they were ashamed and aware of the wrongdoing. That, that's shown in their initial attempts to cover themselves with the fig leaves. God is holy, meaning that he is completely separated from anything sinful. And as their creator, he had the right to judge them when they disobeyed. In fact, his nature and his justice demanded that he respond when they rebelled against him. He could have instituted the death penalty instantly. And it would have been perfectly just if he had done it. But God is also loving and merciful. 
So he did not put a, a premature end to the human race. Adam and Eve had spiritually died, meaning that their relationship to God was broken. But they would continue to physically live long enough to have children who would inherit their propensity to sin. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, God still loved them and provided for them. He agreed with them that their new sinful state required them to cover themselves. But the fig leaves were inadequate. He killed animals instead and made clothes out of them for their skins for Adam and Eve. This is the first place in scripture where anything is killed. And for thousands of years, animals would continue to be killed in an attempt to cover over man's sin and to delay God's wrath against humanity. As in 2 Peter 3.9, God was not willing to leave all of humanity to perish. So he promised that Eve would have a descendant who would defeat Satan. That's in Genesis 3.15. The rest of the Old Testament can be characterized as God dealing with sin in various ways by judging it or putting off judgment and getting ready for the descendant of Eve who would deal with the sin problem once and for all. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden into a world that was now largely hostile to them. And when Genesis tells us that Adam had a son, Seth, in his image and likeness, it leaves no ambiguity about whether the sinful state was in fact passed on from father to son. Scripture affirms that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Eve. The only way that humanity could be saved is if there was a single person who was both fully God and fully man who was related to every single person through Adam because he could only redeem us if he was related to us and so would be qualified to be our redeemer. That's Isaiah 59, 20. In addition, this person would have to live a perfect human life, avoiding every sin and perfectly obeying every command of God's law. And this is precisely who Jesus was and what he did. It's important to understand that this was the only way that humanity could be saved. We can't save ourselves even by our best efforts. No other God or religion or philosophy can save us. If Jesus had not gone to the cross for us, and if he had not been raised on the third day, we would be completely and totally without hope. When a person repents of their sin and trusts in Christ's Christ, God accepts Jesus' sacrifice as payment for that person's sin. It says so in Isaiah 53, 6, and credits Jesus' right, righteousness to that person. That's backed up in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This brings a person into a right relationship with him in a legal sense. They have an innocent instead of a guilty sentence. This is called justification. Furthermore, Okay, the Holy Spirit indwells that person and starts the process of actually making them righteousness, uh, righteous. And that's called sanctification. And it continues until the process is finished after death. It must not be confused with justification. The believer also has a host of privileges as part of being an adopted child of God. So we see that because of Adam's rebellion, all people are born with a sinful nature, which is offensive to God. We're not blameless because we only have the sinful nature, but we cooperate with it and enjoy sin. So we are culpable for the sinful things we do. We deserve to go to hell, every single one of us. But God, 
in his love provides a way out so that anyone who repents will not be judged for their sin, but rather Jesus's sacrifice pays for it. And he did this without us doing anything to merit it. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. Says in Romans 5, 6. And God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5, 8. But there are many people who don't repent. There are some who never hear the gospel. There are others who hear it and reject it for any number of reasons. There are those who even descend into conscious hatred of God. They recognize him and hate him, much like Satan and the fallen angels. And many of these same ones complain that God is not loving because they chose hell of their own accord. If Jesus' sacrifice is the only way to salvation, yet some reject Jesus, what is God supposed to do with that person? God can't apply the salvation they've rejected. Because remember, God gave people the choice to reject him in the Garden of Eden. And so he won't override that when they actually do that. When someone sins and rejects salvation, the only option left is to punish the rebellious creature. Hell is a place for those who reject the loving God. It can be hard for the person who loves God to comprehend that there are people who hate God as much as we love him. That there are people who hate him so much that if they saw him finally, they would not embrace him and, and turn from their own rebellion. But they would shake their fists all the more and damn themselves for eternity. Just as through the spirit, the believer is finally sanctified after death. Something happens to the unbeliever at death that makes him unable to ever repent. He has chosen to hate God and he'll hate God for all eternity. Jesus reminded us that some will not believe even if he rose from the dead. The unbeliever cannot inhabit heaven because he embodies everything that can never enter heaven. And to be in the presence of God is not heaven for him in any case, but the most exquisite torment. He's lost the ability to experience God as anything but terrifying. For a person like that, hell is God giving him what he asked for all along. A place where his presence is not manifested as it is in this life. But this also means that there are none of the blessings and providence that even the unbeliever experiences in this life. The person who goes to hell must reject Christ, who died so that anyone who repents can be saved. So why would a loving God send someone to hell? Because that person is chosen in such a way that God has no other choice. The existence and reality of eternal judgment for the person who does not repent is sobering. And no one really wants to contemplate it too deeply. But the person who goes to hell must reject Christ, who died so that anyone who repents can be saved. So God is not to be blamed when an unrepentant, rebellious creature right, chooses a destructive path that leads to hell. In fact, we all deserve hell due to our sin nature, Right? That separates us from God. But thank God for Jesus. So my final question to you is this. If you died right now, where would you end up for eternity? My final statement is this. The good news is that anyone just listening, you are alive. 
right? So if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus yet for salvation, there is still time to avoid the terrible fate that awaits those who rebel against your creator or to tell your unbelieving friends or family members about the gospel. If you consider yourself a good person that doesn't need salvation, then just consider the following question. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen something? Committed adultery? Blasphemed? If you're truly honest with yourself, you're going to find out that you have failed to reach God's standards for holiness and entrance into eternity with him. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your savior, savior, then you're going to have to represent yourself in God's courtroom when you die and answer for your sins. But for those who believe, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So it says in 1 John 2.1, to the question I just posed a moment ago, if the answer is heaven, perfect. The answer is, I don't know. That's the equivalent or just as scary as the answer of hell. Please accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. Read your Bible and go to a local church and talk with the pastor. You can also reach out to me for more direction and guidance to where you can be led to being saved and have your answer and the truth be, heaven is where I'll be. Just remember, don't wait another five minutes. You may not even have that much time left. So before we end today's show, I just wanted to thank you all again uh, for tuning in. And I, I hope you were touched by God through today's message in scripture. I'd like to ask you a favor only if you received any value out of today's show. Would you tell at least one person you know, just call them, text them, email them, talk to them, you know, tell them to give the show a listen. It may just help their walking uh, Christ, it may just change their eternity. Also, I really need your support. If you could give me a quick, just star rating on your phone app takes literally three seconds. I'd love that help and support from you guys. Uh, It allows the Lord and the Holy Spirit to reach even more lives through this broadcast. If you would like to get a hold of me, you can write me a note on www.shaken-awake.com forward slash contact. You can also email me directly at Ben at shaken-awake.com or even call or text me directly for any reason. My direct number is 407-493-3208. Again, my number is 407-493-3208. I'd love your feedback, your ideas, questions, requests, criticisms, corrections. If it's important to you, it's important to me. And also, if you'd like to be a guest of the show, please reach out to me as well. If you have a life and or eternity changing story you'd like to share, please let me know and I'll schedule you in. We don't hear enough of the truth these days or the positive ways of God and Jesus Christ these days. This podcast with your help is going to change that up. And so I'd love your help with this where you can. So next week, tune in next Sunday evening or whenever you're able as we dive into another important topic. Don't look for the world to provide you what God can give you this second. Next week's episode is another powerful and do not miss episode. Thanks for joining. Until next week, take great care of yourself and each other and God bless you all. 